Let me pray for us, and then we're going to talk about Revelation 2 and 3. It's good. Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for all the people in this room. What an encouraging uh, sight to see. And um, I don't know why everyone's here, um, but I pray that you would meet them in whatever that reason is. Um, For those who are discouraged, I pray that you would encourage them. For those who are uh, thinking their life is great and they're just killing it, I pray that you would... um, let them see that that joy is, is most fully found in you. For those who, who need to be challenged, I pray you challenge them here in your word. Or for those who are low, would you raise them up? And for those who are high, would you bring them low? Um, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 2. There's a little section there. And then Revelation chapter 3. Before I read it, let me tell you what's going on. Uh, Last week, we uh, talked about this semester at RUF, we're looking at the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And it's a fascinating book. It's a complex book. It's full of imagery. It's fast-paced. It's kind of weird because of the imagery mainly. And um, I'm sad to say that the recording didn't work last week. And so if you weren't here, I can't say go listen to the podcast, but they think they got it fixed. So uh, starting this week, you can go back and listen to stuff. Um, But... What happens right here in Revelation 2 and 3 is that uh, the Apostle John, is, he has got a vision from Jesus, from the risen Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, John, write a letter to these churches that you know. These are churches that the Apostle John would have been familiar with. He would have had, likely had friends in all of them. They were in a region which is roughly modern-day Turkey, uh, ancient kind of Asia Minor. And he writes these specific messages to seven churches. And tonight we're going to read about two of those churches, but we're really going to dig down and look at just one of them, because that's all we have time to do uh, kind of in in good measure. So the churches we're going to look at are one is the church at Ephesus. Now you may kind of bring to mind, I may bring to mind the book of Ephesians from the Bible. That's right. The Apostle Paul planted that church on one of his missionary journeys, and he stayed there for probably longer than he stayed anywhere else. And so this church was, um, it was a rather big church by that uh, day's standard. And then the second letter is the church at Laodicea, church at Laodicea. So that's a little bit of background. Let's look at the uh, passage right there and read it. Uh, It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a reference back to chapter 1. It's talking about Jesus. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have, uh, sorry, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And down 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. 
I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. This passage, these two uh, letters to these churches, are about first love. They're about a first love. I remember uh, my first love right up there on the screen. Pretty, right? She's not bad either, right? Uh, I kid. Uh, Sarah and I, I was 25. I was living in Nashville. Uh, I was working that country music scene pretty hard, and Sarah was in physical therapy school. Um, by working in music scene, I mean I like country music. Uh, I was an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt. And... Uh, she came and visited uh, the RUF meeting over there. She was across the street at Belmont doing physical therapy school. And, and I remember uh, going back and, and meeting her for the first time. And we had this kind of awkward introduction, I can tell you sometime, which leads into this long of a story. But that to say, uh, beginning that night, I really did, uh, I had a crush on her, a real big crush. And that led to four, ki- four kids. And... Um, <laughs> So let me tell you, I'm telling you about first love because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like that, that first experience, that, that someone who really, they see you, they see kind of you down to your depths, they see all of you, and they say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay. It, it's a love that is not just emotional, it's volitional. It's someone who chooses you and says, I am planting my flag with you. And that's what the vows represent, right? At any wedding, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, you are the one I'm choosing. It's first love. It, it matters. It's real. It's, it's, it's more permanent. It's more solid than anything that precedes it. It's first love, and it matters. And Jesus, in this passage, he's talking to um, these two churches, and, and he's uh, coming to them, and he looks at, at Ephesus... And did you notice right there in chapter 2, he kind of starts out and he's praising them. He's saying, man, you're doing all this stuff that's great. You're working, you're doing stuff like your church is is happening. And people are volunteering, right? The the nursery is staffed. There's probably a youth group of volunteers. They're giving money. Their budget's being met. Missionaries are being supported. This is a good church. And he says as much. And then he comes right there and drops the hammer, doesn't he? He said, but this I have against you. You've abandoned your first love. Now, what was their first love? It was him. 
He's saying you look so good on the outside, but on the inside you have left your first love. You have left me. And in that we see something that that has been true of every church, certainly before and every church after, is that it is entirely possible to have everything looking good on the outside, to be doing ministry, to be having great works, to be feeding the poor, to be going on mission trips, to all the things that we think of as spiritual and good and right. It's it's totally possible for all that to be in place and yet yet on the inside you've abandoned your first love. And he looks down, that's actually the connection with the church of Laodicea too. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 17. This is Jesus talking and he says, he says, you, he's talking to the church, he says, you say that you're rich. You say that I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. So there it is. From their vantage point, they thought everything was great. They said they kind of took stock of what they had and, and they said, yeah, our missions budget is funded too and, and things are going great. We really don't need anything. But Jesus, he pulls back the curtain. He reveals what's true. And that's, that's this book. It's revelation. He's, he's letting us in on a secret as it were. He's saying things aren't always as they seem. And they aren't always as they seem in our lives, in the surrounding culture, but they're not always the way they seem on the inside, in the church, in in our lives if we're Christians. And so he pulls back the curtain and said, you've lost your first love. I have this against you. So what about you? What about you? You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you've, I don't know, lost your passion? Like a prolonged season of apathy. Maybe that kind of bleeds right on in through that door tonight into that chair. You're just kind of going through the motions. You've lost the zeal. You're, You're doing it just out of routine. Which, hey, I'm glad you're here. There's worse things you can be doing. But, you know, you just... You just know on the inside, I've lost that first love, that drive, that passion, that zeal is gone. Maybe you found your place, uh, yourself in that place where the person that you profess to be on the outside or the person that you pose as on the outside on Wednesday nights maybe is really quite different from the person who lays their head on the pillow at night and has that conversation. And you know that, that you're just you're putting on a show Maybe you're trying to fool yourself. Maybe it's not even that you're trying to put on a show for others. Maybe you're trying to convince yourself that I I am this. Or at least I'm not as bad as that. And yet you know there's a a distance, there's a gap. Things aren't as they seem, are they? That's all of us, whether or not you're a Christian or not. Things are not always as they seem. We need what Jesus says to these churches. We need to hear it. Because he comes right to them, and and though we read about uh, there in Ephesus what's going on, as I said, we're going to zoom down into this church at Laodicea. And though they think they need nothing, what we're going to see is they need so much. They need so much, and so do we. And all the things that they need are the very things that we need. So let's look at that very first one right there. We need to wake up to reality. We need to wake up to reality. This church needs to wake up. So what was the reality in Laodicea that Jesus is describing that they needed to be woken up to? 
Look right there in verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then later on in verse 19, he says that you have lost your zeal. Be zealous, he says. You've abandoned your first love. You've lost your passion. You need to wake up to that. So what is Jesus saying to this church? It's kind of an interesting thing that he does there because at first glance when we read it, you're like, okay, he would rather hot or cold. But this lukewarm thing, he's not down with that. So does that mean that he would rather me just be like on fire for Jesus, everything, whatever that means? Or that he would rather me be like a militant atheist that hates the church and is burning down Christians' homes? Like, surely Jesus would rather like this person than that person, right? Why would he say this? What does it mean? Well, archaeology and history actually help us answer that question. Um, Jesus' word choice to this church is, is most likely slash very likely informed by Laodicea in in the city that it was and what was happening around it. There's a couple things that archaeologists and historians point out that really matter. And the first thing that really matters is that uh, Laodicea as a city had no natural source of water. It didn't have a cool springs which fed that brook which dumped into that reservoir which then serviced the city for drinking water and other sanitation needs and all that. It didn't have that. So they had, to, uh, they had to not truck in, but they had to pipe in water to the city. Now, while it was quite an engineering feat that got this water from miles and miles away through these stone pipes, quite an engineering feat, amazing, but it didn't make for the best-tasting water because the water would come out of a spring in an adjacent city, and it would go for miles and miles, which... Uh, if you, how many of y'all have seen kind of the, this sort of waterways or read about them? It was, it was really fascinating. It really was an engineering marvel. But these pipes would just flow at ever so slight of a grade, right, working against gravity, working on the banks of the hills to make their way down to these other cities. So it would take a long time. And in that blazing heat, that water would get warm, and once it reached Laodicea, it would not be refreshing. It would not be that cool spring water that we get bottled up and called Dasani. It was not that. Just kidding, Coca-Cola. Um, but also, it, so it wasn't this cool, refreshing water. Um, another thing that happened was six miles away in another direction, there was a city named Hierapolis. Hierapolis, if you know a better pronunciation, uh, tell me later. Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs. So on one hand, you had the cool spring water which fed the city. Hierapolis had its hot springs, and the water from Hierapolis would come over this this huge cascading waterfall. And from Laodicea, you could see this cliff which had a hot waterfall flowing over it, and it was beautiful, they said. It was beautiful, and that hot springs would be used for all sorts of medicinal reasons and spas and the baths and all of that. And so there they were in Laodicea. They had neither the cool springs nor the hot water. By the time that that water would make its way through the streams off that cliff to later see it, it was lukewarm. And it tasted terrible. History recounts that people would go and taste this, wanting it to be wonderful, and they would taste it and start vomiting. 
Look at what Jesus says right there. I wish you were either hot or cold, but as you are, you lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. The Greek translation is literally, and I vomit you out of my mouth. They would have been thinking, oh yeah, we know what that means. We get it. He's talking to us. And he says that you are providing, as a church, you are providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary or healing for the spiritually wounded. You're useless. You're lukewarm. You're ineffective. And I don't want to lessen the impact of what Jesus is saying. Because He is coming with force to them. This is a forceful statement. Before we move on, let me just ask for us, what do we do with that? What is it about this lukewarmness that provokes such a strong response from Jesus? What is it about it? I'm going to put this quote up on the stage from somebody a lot smarter than me. It says, Lukewarmness communicates that the one who is the very truth teller and source of life is not worthy of passionate faith. That's the definition of lukewarmness. Lukewarmness is that it just doesn't evoke anything in you. It's not worthy of your passionate faith. It goes on and says, given who, Jesus, who He is, Jesus Christ deserves a vigorous, robust, wholehearted zeal. Be zealous, He says, not fanatical. Fanaticism is an unreasoned and unintelligent wholeheartedness. Zeal is wholeheartedness born of commitment, the commitment of a heart and mind and will that is enthralled with and captured by a person. Zeal is the overflow of being fascinated with and compelled by the one who made us and redeemed us and holds us together. Jesus is calling his readers toward a zeal for him, not fanaticism. If you, this isn't everyone in the room, but if you call yourself a Christian tonight, would anyone accuse you of being zealous for Jesus? Not fanatical, not crazy, standing out by the bell, yelling out, Repent! Believe in Jesus! Not that. Would anyone accuse you of being zealous? A real heart stirring for Jesus and who He is and what He's done for you and what He promises for you and what He's saying about His plan to redeem the world. Are you zealous? Is there any of that in you? And you'd be woken up to the reality that they're lukewarm. There's even more. Jesus goes on in verse 17, and He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, you know, this, this is an interesting thing, because it looks like Jesus is just coming out at them, and He's just wailing them. Like, He's just letting them have it. Like, oh yeah, you think you're this? Well, you're not. Like, you are terrible. This statement is actually super loaded. It's very interesting. Again, historians say that Laodicea was famous for three things. And the first of those things was that it had many banks. It was a financial hub of sorts for that area of of Asia Minor. It was so wealthy, in fact, that um, there was an earthquake in A.D. 60, in 60 A.D., and it leveled three cities around there, Laodicea and several others right around it, Hierapolis, um, and some others that I forgot, which I wouldn't be able to pronounce the name anyway. Um, it just leveled them. 
And in the aftermath of that, Rome, right, the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome came in and said, uh, we're here to offer our resources. What do you need? And Laodicea said, we don't need anything. We've got it. We've got enough money to rebuild. And they rebuilt from the ground up out of their own wealth. It was a rich place. It was a rich place. I'm rich. I'm rich. Second thing Laodicea was famous for is that it was known to be a place that had extravagant clothing. It was known for its clothing industry. There was a particular kind of glossy, shiny, shimmery wool that came from this certain breed of sheep that was over there. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, Someone else did. I know. But this was real. Like, this was something they were known for. And so as a a culture, as a society, they were known for being in fashion. They were well-dressed. Very hip, as the kids say. They were all of that. They were known to be some of the best-dressed people in all of the Roman province of Asia. They gave serious attention to their external appearance. The third thing they were famous for was they were famous for their excellent medical school, especially famous, the historians say, from the eye salve that was developed there. It was believed to heal weak and failing eyes. So look, that's the city of Laodicea. They were rich, they had great clothing, and they had a great medical school. They were healing each other through this eye salve. Is it too much of a stretch to imagine that the broader culture infiltrated the church and impacted the church? Have we ever seen that before? All day long. All day long the church is impacted by the broader culture. And here is Jesus looking at this church saying what? You are poor though you think you're rich. You are naked, though you are extravagantly clothed. And you are blind, though you think you see. What's he getting at? What's he saying? Appearances can be deceiving. We think that we see, and yet we're blind to spiritual realities. We're blind to the things of God. We think that that what matters is how we present ourselves on the outside. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm not that impressed by that. I'm after what's on the inside. I'm after a heart that loves me and loves others. That's what I care about. They say, well, what what about the wealth? We've got that. And Jesus says, you have no idea how bankrupt you are. He pulls back the curtain and opens them up to reality. They had to be woken up. They needed to be reminded of His love for them. And that's the second thing He does. They had a need to be reminded of His love. So what does Jesus do with them? How does He treat them after He exposes all this? Go right to verse 18. He tells them, Look, yes, you're poor and blind and naked, but I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's taking the very real stuff of their lives. He's taking their, their identity. He's taking their idols, the, thing that they're, the things that they're giving themselves to, and He's saying, riches? You want riches? You, you think you have riches? You want security? Come to Me and I will give you security. Well-dressed, you want to be presentable, you want to be accepted. If you'll just see how naked that stuff is leaving you, and come to me and I will welcome you in. 
You want health. You want to be together. You want your life to work. You feel but see how little you are seeing. Come to me and I will give you sight. I will help you see the reality behind all that is. He's offering them His love and He tells them that in verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. Yeah, Jesus is hes giving them hard words. He doesn't hold back. This is a strong saying. Have you ever felt Jesus say something strong to you, whether through the Word or here at RUF or at church or maybe through a friend? It feels like a rebuke, like they're just coming right at you and saying, look, this is your life and this is the way it's headed and you need to turn this way and repent. That's what repent means, to change directions. Jesus is saying He only does that for people who love who He loves. I'm telling you that because I love you. I discipline those. I reprove those whom I love. Do you hear His reproof? Do you hear His discipline? If you do, if you're hearing that and it's sinking down in, that means that He loves you. Be zealous and repent. I love you. I heard a story uh, recently about a man who was married to his wife for... A number of years, actually. I didn't hear how many years, but a long time. And he, uh, after a long time, uttered those words which are tragically familiar to some of us in this room. He looked at his wife, some of your parents, dad, looked at mom and, and said, I've fallen out of love with you. I don't love you anymore. And I'm sure he had done things up to that point. Uh, which would have been in keeping with that statement. And he certainly did things after. He and his wife separated, uh, began to kind of uh, move away from each other in all aspects of their life. Uh, They began the divorce proceedings, which took some time, as they always do. And during that time, the husband, uh, he got very sick, very sick. Um, He was in the hospital. He had kidney failure. It was pretty touch and go on whether or not he was even going to make it. And um, as would be expected, his, his still then wife heard about this and, and didn't delay, but she came up to the hospital. She came up to his room and said, I'm going to give you one of my kidneys. I'm going to give you one of my kidneys. And people who are familiar with the situation upon hearing this uh, in the days after, they were wondering, well, did, like, why is she doing this? Is she trying to, like, angle at him for, to get more in the divorce settlement, uh, maybe custody, better custody of the kids? Like, why would she come in and do this? And one of those people who was familiar uh, with what was happening came to her and asked her and said, what are you doing? Why would you do this? And she said, it's simple, really. He's sick and dying, and I care about him. And her very sick husband heard this. He heard about this, whether from her or someone else. And he came to his senses and he realized no one else is running to me, offering to give me anything right now. And the very person that I've offended the most is saying, I care about you and I want to help you. It changed him. It changed him. Actually, incidentally, they went on to be reconciled and they stayed married. What moved her to do that? It was love. 
She loves him. She, she looked at the one who had hurt her and who was very sick and had been sick toward her. And her love moved her toward him and said, you have a great need. And I want to meet it. I love you. He didn't deserve it. She was offering him grace. Friends, uh, do you hear Jesus offering this church his grace? Do you hear him offering you his grace? It's not about us deserving it. We never do. They didn't. They were lukewarm. They had done so many other things. So many other lovers. So have you. So have I. And Jesus comes and says, it's never about how fit you are to receive my grace. That's what makes grace grace. It is my initiative. I come to you and offer it to you. You receive it. You take it. And it changes you just as it did this man. Jesus says, come to me, buy without money. He's quoting Isaiah. Come to me, buy and eat. Yes, you've had other lovers. You've run after other things. They're killing you from the inside, but I love you. So there's a need to be reminded of his love. And lastly, there's a need for a response. A need for a response. He reminds them of his true things, but he doesn't just remind them. He actually presses into that and says, well, what are you going to do with it? Like, what are you going to do with my love? What do you do with it? What will you do with my offer of grace? He looks and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That word behold, it's all throughout the book of Revelation. It's, it means this, look. It's a command, look. I'm at the door knocking. He goes on, verse 20, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. He gives this picture of glory. And as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne, He's knocking, He's knocking. Some of y'all in here, um, He's knocking at the front door. And you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're still processing it, checking it out, and it's fine. It really is fine. And we're not going to press you right now, you have to figure all this out right now. But do hear Jesus at that door knocking even as you listen to it tonight. And I want you to ask this very serious question of yourself. And I would strongly encourage you to share it with a trusted friend, to share the answer with a trusted friend, whether that's me, an intern, a friend, a student. Talk to them about this. Answer this question. Why is it I'm keeping him on the outside? Why is it that I'm still looking at him through the little window on that door? What is it that you're still evaluating about him? Maybe it's, it's scary, the thought of him coming into your house and seeing your stuff and asking you to change. Maybe that's scary. Again, fear, it's real. Maybe you're scared that Jesus is going to come and he's going to look at the pictures and all the stuff from your past and he's going to start digging around in that and that just kind of makes your skin crawl. And you don't want to go there. There's too much shame. There's too much uh, that stuff. What is it? I would love to have that conversation with you. I would love to tell you more about His love and His grace and His forgiveness that's been so real in my life. I have stuff I'm not proud of that was fearful. Talk to somebody about that. Some of you are in a little bit different spot. You'd say that Jesus has come in the front door. You're professing faith in Him. You'd say you're following Him and yet the passion is gone. The zeal is left. You're lukewarm. You've lost that first love. 
a guy by the name of Daryl Johnson, who I'll quote all semester, he's so good on this stuff. He says, lukewarmness is fundamentally due to a fact about which we are usually unaware. We have excluded Jesus from one or more, one or more areas of life. But the solution to lukewarmness is not to jack up warm emotions. The solution is not to exert more self-sufficiency. The solution is to open the door again. It doesn't mean you're becoming a Christian again. It doesn't mean you're reopening the front door again. But it may mean this, uh, that you haven't let him into that bedroom door. Jesus doesn't have access to your sexuality and what you're doing with that. Meaning you haven't let him into the office. You're not letting him get a hold of your money in the way that you're spending that, or the way that you're thinking about that, the way that you pursue internships and all this stuff just sheerly for the money. Some of you have to. I realize that's a different deal. Maybe you haven't let him in that refrigerator door. And you're not letting him touch the body image stuff that consumes you and the way that you uh, obsess over the small things. And um, I realize that's super complicated. I realize that's very touchy. Some of you, though, are saying, no, you can't have this. I'm not letting you hear it's too much, Jesus. Some of you aren't letting him out the back door and you're not letting him out to the recreation space of your life or the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time. And friends, all of that stuff... That, that keeping Jesus out of these doors and these rooms of our house, it leads to lukewarmness because He was never meant to just go sit on the couch. He wants to come in and He wants to take up residence everywhere and say, that area is mine. Let me show you what life looks like here and here and here and here. Let me finish with this story. There's a, a woman sitting on the porch with her husband. And it's, a, it's an idyllic setting. Beautiful country home. The sun is just going down at the end of the evening. It's 74 degrees, which is perfect. Not any warmer than that. 74 degrees. They're sitting out there rocking in the rocking chair. The kids are away at college. Man, what could be better? Uh, and uh, she's got a glass of wine. And they're just, I mean, it is like, it's everything you would want or that you should want. And um, they're rocking. And it's silent. It's tranquil. It's perfect. She breaks the silence and says this. I love you. And I don't know if I could ever live without you. And the husband says, honestly, is that you talking or is that the wine talking? And she says this, no, it's me talking to the wine. (laughs) I love you so much. I've never wanted to do life without you. Look, y'all, the reality is, is that every one of us is saying that to something other than Jesus. Every one of us is saying that to something other than Jesus. We've got things in our life, places in our life where we're saying, I'm not going to let you in there. But it's hard to know what has you unless you can identify it. So look at this. What has your time? What do you give your time to? What do you get most excited or most angry about? What do you spend your money on? What do you daydream about? That's what has you. And Jesus says, I've got to come in there too. I've got to come in there too. He's knocking, he's knocking, but don't be mistaken. When he says to them, be zealous and repent, he's saying, do it now. 
If, if you see me knocking there, don't waste time. I love you. I'm what you need. I'm what you want. Whether or not you realize there's no time to waste. Which doors have you kept shut to Jesus? If you see them, run to them and open them. And let him in. Jesus says this, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Let's pray together.